I am a zombie. And it's not so bad. I'm learning to live with it. I'm sorry I can't properly introduce myself, but I don't have a name anymore. Hardly any of us do. We forget them. Like anniversaries and pin numbers. I think mine might have started with a T, but I'm not sure. It's funny, because back when I was alive, I was forgetting other people's names. I am finding that irony abounds in the zombie life. An ever-present punchline. But it's hard to smile when your lips have rotted off. Before I became a zombie, I think I was a businessman or young professional of some kind. I think I worked in one of those stifling office jobs in a high-rise somewhere. The clothes clinging to the remains of my body are high-quality business casual. Fine garbadine slacks, silvery silk shirt, red Armani power tie. I would probably look pretty sharp if my intestines weren't dragging at my feet. <laughs> we like to joke and speculate about our remaining outfits, since these final fashion choices are usually the only indication of who we were before we became no one. Some people's are less obvious than mine. Jeans and a white t-shirt, skirt and a tank top. So we make random guesses. You were a plumber. You were a barista. Ring any bells? It usually doesn't. No one I know has any specific memories. We recognize some things, buildings, cars, Armani ties, but context eludes us. We are here. We do what we do. We lack excellent diction, but we do communicate. We grunt and groan. We make hand gestures, and sometimes a few words slip out. It's not that different from before. There are a few hundred of us living in a wide plain of dust outside some large city. We don't need shelter or warmth, obviously. We stand around in the dust, and time passes. I think we've been here a long time. Despite my dragging entrails, I am in decay's early stages. But there are a few elderly ones here who are little more than skeletons with clinging bits of muscle. Somehow, it still extends and contracts, and they keep moving. I've never seen any of us die of old age. Maybe we live forever. I don't know. I don't think much about the future anymore. That's something that's very different from before. When I was alive, the future was all I thought about. Obsessed about. Death has relaxed me. But it makes me sad that we've forgotten our names. Out of everything, this seems to be the most tragic. I don't miss my own but I mourn for everyone else's because I want to love them, but I don't know who they are. Today, a group of us are going into town to find some food. How this expedition begins is one of the, us gets hungry and starts shuffling towards town, and a few others follow him. Focus thought is a rare occurrence with us, and we follow when we see it. Otherwise, we would just be standing around groaning. We do a lot of standing and groaning, and it's frustrating sometimes. Years pass this way. The flesh withers on our bones, and we stand around, waiting for it. I am curious how old I might be. The city where the people live is not that far. We arrive around noon and start looking for living flesh. The new kind of hunger is a strange feeling. You don't feel it in your stomach. Of course not, since some of us don't have stomachs. You feel it just... everywhere. You start to feel more dead. I've watched some of my friends go back to being full dead when food is scarce. They just slow down and stop, and become corpses again. I don't really understand it. I guess the world is mostly ended, because the cities we wandered through are decaying as fast as we are. Buildings are collapsed. Dead, rusted cars fill the streets. All glass everywhere is shattered. I don't know if it was a war, or a plague, or if it was just us. Maybe it was all three. I don't know. I don't think about things like that anymore. In a cluster of broken down apartment buildings, we find some people, and we eat them. Some of them have weapons, and as usual, we lose some of our number. But we don't care. Why would we care? What's death now? Eating is not a pleasant business. I chew off a man's arm, and I hate this. It's disgusting. I hate his screams, because I don't like pain. I don't like to hurt things. But this is the world now. This is what we do. Of course, if I don't eat all of him, 
if I leave just enough, he'll rise up and follow me back to our dusty field outside the city, and that might make me feel better. I'll introduce him to everyone, and maybe we'll stand around and groan for a while. It's hard to say what friends are anymore, but maybe that's close. If I don't eat all of him, if I leave enough. But of course I don't leave enough. I eat his brain, because it's the good part. That's the part that, when I swallow it, makes my head light up with feelings. Clear memories. For about three to ten seconds, depending on the person, I get to feel alive. I get traces of delicious meals, beautiful music, perfume, orgasms, sunsets, life. Then it fades, and I get up and stumble out of the city, still dead, hoping a little less, feeling okay. I don't know why we have to eat people. I don't understand what chewing off a man's neck accomplishes. We certainly don't digest the meat and absorb the nutrients. My stomach is a rotted bag of dried bile. Useless. We don't digest. We just eat until the weight forces it out of our assholes. And then we eat more. It feels so useless. And yet, it keeps us walking. I don't know why. None of us really understand why we are here. We don't know if we're the result of some strange global infection, or some ancient curse, or something even more senseless. We don't talk about it much. Existential debate is not a major part of zombie life. We are here, and we do things. We are simple. It's nice sometimes. Outside the city again, back with the others in the dust field, I start walking in a circle for no reason. I plant one foot in the dirt and pivot on it, around and around, kicking up clouds of dust. Before, when I was alive, I could never have done this. I remember stress. I remember bills and deadlines, asset retention reports. I remember being so occupied, so always everywhere all the time occupied. Now I'm just standing in a wide open field of dust, walking in a circle. The world has been distilled. Being dead is easy. After a few days of this, I stop walking and I stand still, swaying back and forth, groaning a little. I don't know why I groan. I'm not in pain, and I'm not sad. I think it's just air being squeezed in and out of my lungs. When my lungs decompose, it will probably stop. And now, while swaying and groaning, I notice a dead woman standing a few feet away from me, facing the distant mountains. She doesn't sway or groan. Her head just lolls from side to side. I like that about her, that she doesn't sway or groan. I walk over and stand beside her. I wheeze some kind of greeting, and she responds with a lurch of her shoulder. I like her. I reach out and touch her hair. She has not been dead very long. Her skin is gray and her eyes slightly sunken, but she has no exposed bones or organs. Her death outfit is a black skirt and a snug white button-up. I suspect she used to be a waitress. Pinned to her chest is a silver name tag. I can read her name. She has a name. Her name is Emily. I point to her chest. Slowly, with great effort, I say, Emery! The word rolls off what's left of my tongue like honey. What a good name. I feel warm saying it. Emily's cloudy eyes widen at the sounds, and she smiles. I also smile. And then maybe I'm a little nervous, because my tibia snaps, and I fall backwards into the dust. Emily just laughs, and it's a choked, raw, lovely sound. She reaches down and helps me to my feet. Emily and I have fallen in love. I'm not sure how this happens. I remember what love was like before, and this is different. This is simpler. Before, there were complex and emotional and biological factors at work. We had long checklists and elaborate tests we passed. We looked at hairstyles and careers and breast sizes, and sex was there, and everything, confusing everyone, like hunger. It created longing. It created ambition, competition. It drove people to leave their houses and invent automobiles, spacecraft, and atom bombs, when they could instead just sit on the couch until they died. Animal cravings. Subconscious urges. Sex made the world go round. This is all gone now. Sex, once a force of universal's gravity, is now irrelevant. Ambition and longing have left the equation. My penis fell off two weeks ago. 
so the equation is deleted. The blackboard erased. And things are different now. Our actions have no ulterior motives. We shuffle out in the dust and occasionally have lumbering, grunting exchanges with our peers. No one argues. There are no fights. Ever. And Emily is not a complicated process. I just see her and walk over to her. And for no reason, really, I decide, I want to be with her for a long time. So now we shuffle around in the dust together instead of alone. For whatever reason, we enjoy each other's company. When we have to go into town to eat people, we do it at separate times, because it's unpleasant, and we don't want to share that. But we share everything else, and it's nice. We decided to walk to the mountains. It takes us three days, but now we are standing on a cliff, looking up at a fat white moon. At our backs, the night sky is red from distant cities burning. But we don't care about that. I clumsily grab Emily's hand, and we stare at the moon. There's no real reason for any of this, but like I said, the world has been distilled. Love has been distilled. Everything is easy now. Yesterday my leg broke off, and I don't even mind. That's right, almost every single zombie movie was wrong. Kind of strange, seeing as there are so many films related to the genre, right? 28 Weeks Later, The Walking Dead, not a movie I know. The Cured, Zombieland, World War Z, don't even get me started on World War Z, and I am legend. You get the picture, all wrong. I mean, the infected were as ferocious as those of World War Z or 28 weeks later, and sometimes as numerous, but grouped up as the walking dead. Yes, in many sad and sorrowful cases, they did chew lots of people to bits, and then still hungry, cross entire continents in incomprehensible large hordes like in Z Nation to feed on more innocent souls in greener pastures. But no, the so-called zombie apocalypse was boring. Just mind-numbingly tedious, dull, and quite literally dead boring. Most of the time. In fact, the infected became more of a nuisance than a world-ending threat. Why, you may ask? Well, the answer is more obvious than you think. Ask yourself, what have humans been doing for millennia? And what will they always continue to do until they finally do actually meet their miserable end? Kill each other. Yes, we have no qualms about dropping nuclear bombs which could incinerate hundreds of thousands of people in an instant on each other in Japan. What makes you think a person who is infected with a disease that can make them brutally savage a whole room of people, tearing them into crimson soap shreds of flesh which makes a sad squelchy sound as they hit the cold gray floor? not die as quickly as someone who doesn't have an innate drive for human flesh and in infecting others. In fact, we, as a race, were too good at killing the infected. So good, it was scary. More scary than the infected themselves. When they began to emerge into large groups that could breach a city's defenses, they could be moabbed into the next world which they should have passed already. Got a group of flesh-hungry freaks chasing after you? Nothing a few rounds from a general-purpose machine gun couldn't fix. Have a 250-pound bloodthirsty man-beast slamming its polarized fist on the door of your quiet suburban home? Nothing a 9mm pistol couldn't solve. Heat-seeking missiles, miniguns, Kalashnikovs, rocket-propelled grenades, hand-tossed grenades, Apache gunships, if you were lucky, seaborne guns, even handheld weapons with a certain range, were all of use. For many across the world, when the infected came, it was just business as usual. Instead of shooting at whoever was shooting back at you, you now join them in shooting, mouth-foaming, bloodshot-eyed monsters dressed in ripped jeans. It was like a turkey shoot. Hell, the infected even promoted regional peace in some places. Israel joined Palestine together to cut down anything that dared enter the Sinai Peninsula. In Mexico, rival cartels and gangs joined together to protect the local population, at least the ones who could pay enough, from a marauding monstrosity. Even India and Pakistan set to fight together until a small border issue escalated into a nuclear holocaust the world has never seen the likes of before. The exact location of patient zero is unknown. What we do now know, however, is that the infection started to pick up pace in Zambia, being given the name Zambian Rabies, then later the nickname of the Nile Flu, due to its transmission down the world's longest river. After a few weeks, it was established that a local effort to curb the spread of the virus had successfully contained it to Africa. The vast majority of cases were in sub-Saharan Africa, where the ability to fight back was poor, and a few cases had sprung up on the periphery of North Africa. Despite the successful containment, it was not enough to stop the impending collapse. 
People did something else that they have done for millennia when they are faced with civilizational threats. They freaked. Here in Britain, the fear-fueled masses hit the supermarkets hard. They plundered the canned food and non-perishable aisles, and then ate through what was left of the perishable goods in a matter of hours. Financial institutions collapsed within the day, and the government collapsed within the week. So much for strong and stable. Martial law ensued. People got hungry, stayed indoors for days, not daring to venture outside into the chaotic new world which had been bequeathed upon them by fear. Soon they began to starve. Those with food had it taken from them by those with more firepower. Then those with firepower were slowly dealt with by those who had even more firepower, namely the army. People were rumored to have begun eating each other long before the infected showed up. Lord Henry Kitchener's new military government actions in those early days were the only thing that managed to keep some semblance of order. After the mass freakout was when the boredom began. 20% of the population had died from starvation, lack of water, or in the maelstrom of violence which followed the news of the outbreak. For me personally, it wasn't that different. For the first few hours a day, the electricity comes back on, and I sit in my room watching YouTube or posting to Reddit. However, when the electricity goes out between 9pm and 12pm the next day, I sometimes wish I was fighting the infected. At least that would be somewhat entertaining. Life is somewhat normal now. You can go to the shop and exchange your ration toke for some bread, vegetables, and meat. A bit like how my grandfather described the jolly old days of the Blitz. At least they had a fighting spirit back then. You could take a stroll down the street passing a heavily armored vehicle or two. Their occupants engaged in a game of cards, rifles slung lazily on their backs. Perhaps you were entertained by more worldly pleasures. You can engage in many forms of illicit activity which would not be fulfilled before. There were no luxury summer holidays abroad. The only aircraft flying overhead were being military in nature. No more trips to the movies. No more McDonald's drive through A little TV, and certainly no more drunken nights to the local nightclub. Just boredom. The infection has spread into mainland Europe now, but it is mainly under control. Most places are holding up fine. Only threatened at night when visibility is low, and infected that have been hiding during the day come out to ravage local populations. We in Britain are experiencing a sort of phony war again. Just sitting and waiting for the infection to reach our shores. If we don't all die from boredom first. The change was quite slow, now that I think about it. That's why I wasn't surprised when I lost the family home in the fire. With the family inside. It was tragic, yes. And it took more than a while to pick myself up from the ground. But I think the anticipation helped me cope. It started with the black helicopters. Abe Loveless who was the PM before mob rule broke out, had ordered a complete shutdown of all borders, but it was no use. Canada, Scotland, Nepal, and China all did the same thing and failed. Even North Korea had fallen into the infection before us. We hoped that Australia would have an advantage, being an island country. But over the course of three years, we couldn't hold the infection off. However, it really wasn't the disease that destroyed us. It was the riots mobs, and mass hysteria. If someone came down with something as trivial as hay fever, the mob would have grabbed them and thrown them in the river anyway. After a while, Tasmania lost contact with the outside world. News station burned, planes crashed, and ships sank. At that point came an age which was comparable to the Lord of the Flies. Civil rule took over. Three good people stood above the crowd, trying to bring peace and order to save the lives of their friends and family. Their throats were promptly slit. Then, they inevitably woke up, after three hours slumber, out for blood. Zombies. Before the Zompocalypse, zombies were just a part of myth and legend, which constantly appeared in film, books, and video games. People were obsessed with them. But now all we want to do is escape their decaying grasps. Our once population of 500,000 fell to 300,000 after the first riots. That's when I lost my family. Three hours later, they climbed from the rubble, blackened by fire and reddened by blood. The population fell again to 150,000. After our first year alone, the population continued to fall. People weren't accustomed to the tribal life in Tasmania, which was previously a hub of inhumanity had degraded to a hub of savagery. It became a cause of celebration when you recognized someone from your old life, even if they didn't recognize you back. I'm sorry to break it to you, 
but my last friend, Sam, didn't make it past 25 years of age. I lost him four years ago. We went on a supply run at an old abandoned grocer's. It had gone untouched during the riots because it was buried under the depths of a rural village. Through an obscure alley and a flight of stairs under the ground, it was filled with rotten fruits and meats, but there were one line of shelves at the back where they were lined with enough preservatives to feed the whole lodge. Hey Sam, do you remember alphabet soup? I asked, picking another can from the shelf. Because that still exists. I hate alphabet soup, he cringed. You're a monster, I snapped, hugging the can. Besides, you can't afford to be picky. Fine, he said, snatching a jar of preservative olives from the shelves. I dare you to eat one of these. He knew I feared olives more than death itself. I opened my satchel, placing the alphabet soup in it, and stared at the olives with cautious eyes. Okay, I replied, reaching out for them, when we get back. I'm not going to forget, Sam said, as I placed the olives in my satchel. Later we began to walk up the store, when something caught Sam's eye. No way, he gasped. What? I asked, absentmindedly turning to see what he was looking at. He jumped over the store counter and stepped over the corpse of the owner. Check it, he grinned from ear to ear, picking a strangely shaped black bag from under the shopkeeper's desk. What is it? I asked. Yes, he laughed, ignoring me. It's not empty. He unzipped the bag to pull out a saxophone. I haven't played in years, he gawked. I lost mine in the fire. Oh, my hand tightened around my satchel. I wouldn't put my lips on that. No, I'm not going to. I had a box of old reeds hidden somewhere, he said, putting the saxophone back in the bag and gracefully sliding over the counter, and I'm going to look around for some disinfectant. Sam, I groaned. Why would you need that when we have a perfectly good rusty trombone at base? Pfft, he scoffed. He climbed through the aisles and finally lifted a purple box of disinfectant into the air. We got to the base just before sunset. Base was originally a tourist lodge, and it was constructed as a safe haven by the last tourist in Tasmania, an American named Jacob Sampson. He was a bit of a genius before the Zompocalypse. It would have been called a gated community, but now ungated communities didn't exist, making the word gated redundant. Sam and I settled into our pad and sat around, waiting for Sam to clean his new saxophone. Oh no, I said as he sat down, smiling wildly. This is going to be a nightmare. Just sit back, he said, and let the music take you away. I sighed and stood up. All right, but I'll listen for you from the other room. I moved into the kitchen, opened up a cold can of beans, sat down to eat and attempted to finish the book I was reading. I didn't know why I kept torturing myself, even if the author was still alive. There was no way I was going to get the last book of the series. After an hour passed... I leaned back to ask Sam why it was taking him so long to tune the saxophone. He merely scowled, saying, It is tuned. Later on, I crept into bed, blowing out the lantern on my nightstand. The night had settled around me. I could hear the crickets chirping outside and a group of lodgers chatting far in the distance. The night was icy, but the years had acclimatized me to sleeping in the cold. It didn't take long for sleep to embrace me, but I was awakened by Sam knocking at my door three slow and steady knocks. Travis! He was breathing heavily and painfully forcing his words out. Sam? I asked, jumping out the bed and stepping through the the room. Let me in, he mumbled. What do you want? I asked, sliding the latch along the door. I am hungry. My heart jumped into my throat. There's food in the kitchen, I called through the door. I'm so hungry, Travis, he slurred. Let me in, I'm starving. I slid the latch back into place and backed away from the door. Sam, you better not be joking, I said, backing toward my bedside table and reaching inside for my knife. Give me food, please. I flicked a match and lit my lantern, lifting it above me and stepping towards the door. I heard Sam furiously scratching at the wood. Sam, try to control yourself, I said, sliding the latch open and stepping back. The door handle rotated and the door swung inwards. Sam stood in the doorway, staring at me. His eyes were shrouded by his brow. His fingernails were bloody from scratching the door. Beads of sweat were falling from his forehead and his breathing was deep and heavy. His feet padded along the ground as he lumbered toward me. Sam, you got three seconds to get out of here or I'm going to kill you. He froze in his spot and looked up at me. 
His lips were blue and his right eye was a long strand of mold blooming from it. His left eye was blood red. He snarled and ran straight into my knife. It drove its way into his chest, crunching through his sternum and tearing into his heart. His teeth gnashed my ear, so I pushed him back. Once he was far enough away, I kicked him back. He collapsed to the ground, writhing and choking. I jumped onto him and brought the knife down, driving it into his skull. A warm torrent of blood climbed up the knife and bathed my hands. The red pool expanded beside him until his struggling stopped, and he finally died. I could feel my eyes tearing up. The stench was unbearable. A deep, stinging sensation filled my limbs and the back of my throat, a feeling of panic. I looked down at his corpse, which was frozen still, and out of the corner of his mouth I spotted it, jammed to the backside of his cheek and covered in brown, sticky blood. It was the reed of the saxophone. June 17th. They call them the Risen now. A fitting name, I suppose. For those who should stay in their graves. But once, they were us. Friends, family, strangers. Now there is something else entirely. I write this as both a testament to my survival and a plea for understanding for the world I knew was gone, replaced by a relentless nightmare. June 23rd. It all began with whispers, the murmurs of a strange illness sweeping through our town. People brushed it off, as we always do when confronted with something we can't comprehend. But then the whispers grew louder, and the infected began to emerge from their homes, their eyes vacant, their skin pallid. They hungered for the living. June 30th. The outbreak escalated quickly, consuming our town in a relentless tide of death. I watched as neighbors turned on neighbors, the infected tearing into their flesh. Panic spread faster than the virus, and soon, there was no refuge left. I had to make an agonizing choice. Protect my family, or myself. July 10th. The streets are now a wasteland of shattered glass and abandoned cars. The groans of the risen echo through the night. A chorus of despair that never seems to fade. I've learned to move silently to avoid attracting their attention. I scavenge for supplies, always on the lookout for other survivors who might pose a threat. July 18th. Loneliness has become my constant companion. The sound of my own voice feels foreign, a harsh reminder of the life I once knew. I wonder if I'm the last living soul in this forsaken world. The infected are relentless, and their numbers seem to grow with each passing day. July 25th. I've taken refuge in an abandoned building, fortifying as best I can. Nights are the worst, filled with the distant moans of the risen and the scratching of the doors and windows. Sleep is a fleeting luxury, for every sound, every shadow, sends my heart pounding with dread. August 2nd. This journal is my only companion now, a lifeline to sanity in a world gone mad. I've seen things that would haunt the bravest of souls families torn apart, the humanity stripped away from their infected, and the relentless march of the risen. It's a world where the line between life and death is blurred into an endless nightmare. August 10th. My supplies are dwindling, and hope, like a fading ember, grows dimmer with each passing day. I don't know if anyone else will read these words, if there are any others out there, hiding the shadows, clinging to the last vestiges of humanity but I write them anyway, a testament to my existence, a record of the horrors I've witnessed. August 20th. As I prepare to face another night filled with dread and uncertainty, I hold on to the fragile hope that somewhere, somehow, there is a sliver of salvation, a chance to escape this relentless nightmare and find a glimmer of humanity in the darkness. The risen are relentless, but so is my will to survive. File. 2TR1H9 File number 3196.52R File name T2R1H9 File date creation June 15, 2018 File creator Dr. X. Fitzgerald File description Details and summary of the 2TR1H9 virus Date, June 15th, 
2018. On Monday, June 4, 2018, symptoms of a virus began to appear in several regions of the American Southwest, Central America, and Southeast Asia. Physical descriptions of the illness were reminiscent of certain animal bites, but none could be matched to a specific animal. The origin of the virus is unknown. I will continue to post my findings as they come, including updates about new symptoms. Good night for now. Dr. Xander J. Fitzgerald. Known Symptoms June 15, 2018 High Fever, 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, 38 degrees Celsius Dry Mouth, Pain, Wheezing, Sweaty Palms, Body Aches, Muscle Soreness, Nausea, Loss of Appetite, Inflammation of the Joints, Necrosis of the Tissue at Source Date June 23, 2018. The CDC has officially released a press statement as of 8.13 a.m. Eastern Standard Time this morning on Saturday, June 23, 2018, to discuss the status of the disease. They have verified that the new strain, now formally referred to as T2R2H9 virus, is legitimate. They're working on finding a cure and methods on how to contain it. The Department of Defense has yet to confirm the allegations of initiating martial law to quarantine major cities, in which the virus has been do- documenting more reports of the virus. Known symptoms, June 23, 2018. No changes. Date, June 26, 2018. A new break has come in in search of a cure for the virus. An independent medical group stationed in Chicago, Illinois, has reported that they have attempted to see if they can slow the rate at which the virus spreads or terminate it with rounds of known antibiotics. Despite their findings being deemed inconclusive by the CDC, their findings suggest that nothing they tried worked to slow or destroy the virus. Known symptoms, June 26, 2018. No changes. Date, July 1, 2018. The CDC has released a new statement as of yesterday, Saturday, June 30, 2018, they announced that none of their attempts to terminate the virus has worked, and that it's starting to replicate itself faster. Symptoms of T2R1H9 have begun to appear in parts of Europe, Africa, and Oceania. A report from Thailand also came out corroborating their findings, as well as verification that the virus is evolving. No information is yet to be found leading to a definitive cause of the virus origin. No word is still yet to be announced from the Department of Defense about the initiation of martial law. However, news outlets have speculated rumors about a bill that will temporarily shut down trade ports and airlines as a means to attempt to contain the virus. Known symptoms, July 1, 2018. Hallucinations, painful blisters, vomiting, dilated veins, rapid weight loss, tremors, mood swings, high white blood cell count. Date, July 5th, 2018. Chaos has begun to set in the news about the virus continues to spread. The public is in unrest, and most are fleeing to rural areas to escape the violence of the cities. The Department of Defense has officially placed the United States of America under martial law and instructs all nations who have yet to follow suit to do so as soon as possible. Autopsies of those who have been killed before the virus could fully spread have yet to provide leads to a potential cause to help examiners get closer to find a cure. Examination of the body showed that several major organs appeared heavily deoxygenated and inflamed, even hours after experiencing the first symptoms. Dissection of the infected organs revealed they were filled with pus and what resembled black mold. One examiner, T. Kanai, said that upon examining one of the mouths of the deceased, he noticed that their teeth were abnormal. She initially assumed the individual had gingival recession, but their gums were perfect and showed no signs of disease or decay. Instead, it was their teeth that seemed to be moving, as if there were new teeth trying to push their way up to the surface. Kanai also commented that something about their eyes made her uncomfortable, but declined to comment any further. Known symptoms, July 5, 2018. Potential tooth loss. Date, July 9, 2018. The CDC has set up quarantine centers across the United States, Canada, and Mexico as means to section off the infected from the healthy. In these government-sanctioned camps, Medical staff and government personnel have released statements about their findings as they do test runs to find a cure, which were leaked to the deep web and appeared on various political and government message boards over the past 48 hours. 
According to personnel at an undisclosed base in Arizona, they revealed that some of the symptoms have taken a drastic and sinister turn to the worst. An unidentified petty officer and medical examiner reported seeing infected individuals with lure black sclerus, as well as a sudden loss of their fingernails and seizures. Their accounts have yet to be confirmed, and the CDC has ordered that all deceased individuals are to be burned as a safety precaution whether or not they're infected with the virus. The virus has been confirmed as being in six continents, and all airports and borders in 110 countries have been closed on as of Monday, July 9th, 2018. Known symptoms, July 9th, 2018. Fingernail loss. Outbursts of rage. Date, July 17th, 2018. A research team in Wyoming has taken the data calculated from the base in Arizona and decided to do a series of experiments to study how the virus changes. According to the study, they took three patients who are at different rates of the infection, placed them under heavy surveillance in separated chambers on Tuesday, July 10th, 2018 at 1300. Day 1. Subject number 1. Sex unspecified. Aged 25. Showing mild moderate symptoms. Loss of appetite. Moderate body aches, tremors, nausea, vomiting, and mild hallucinations. Visual. Overall health. Stable. Mood or temperament. Good. Thoughts. Clear. Subject number two. Sex. Female. Age. 33. Showing moderate severe symptoms. Rapid weight loss. Nausea. Vomiting. Dilated veins. Mild discolored of the salaris. Fingernail loss, moderate hallucination, visual and auditory, mild, moderate tremors, and a high blood cell count. Overall health, stable, mood or temperament, fine, thoughts, scattered. Subject number three, sex, male, age 45. Showing severe symptoms. Demonstrates some degree of all the known symptoms, with the exception of loss of appetite. Subject number three shows symptoms have yet to be documented amongst the infected. One, his original teeth have all fallen out and replaced by a row of jagged, sharp teeth made for ripping flesh from bone. And two, a form of Wendigo psychosis, which is characterized by a deep craving for human meat as food. Upon being given a cooked steak, he refused to eat it. When given a raw steak, he became curious, only to throw it across the room after tasting it. When given a scrap bucket of viscera from the morgue, he took it into a corner and devoured all the contents. Overall health, unstable. Mood or temperament, easily distressed and volatile. Thoughts, scattered and unclear. Day 4. Subject number 1. Condition has steadily gotten worse. Subject number 1's Solaris has turned black and now expresses bouts of intense rage. Overall health, unstable. Mood or temperament, unpredictable. Thoughts unclear. Subject number two. Condition has remained stable. She still has no appetite and has to be guided to eating. Her scleras are dark gray and several of her teeth have been replaced with the same teeth as subject number three. Subject number two refuses to sleep or can't. Overall health, stable, mood or temperament, anxious. Thoughts scattered. Subject number three. Conditions remain unstable. He refuses to eat any food items that aren't in his bucket, and has been documented demonstrating violent bursts of rage if his needs aren't met accordingly. Subject number three requires maximum level amount of security when having food transferred to him, and has demonstrated inhuman amounts of strength. He was also recorded from surveillance cameras, tormenting and agonizing on-duty staff. Overall health, unstable. Mood or temperament, unstable. Thoughts, scattered and cloudy. Day 7. Subject number one. Condition has slowly gotten worse, now demonstrating incredible bouts of strength, throwing their bed across the room when their demands aren't met. When subject number one's fingernails were collected for testing, they attacked an on-duty officer, mildly injuring him in the process. Subject number one refuses to talk to or comply with the orders of staff officials. The status of the guard's health is yet to be disclosed. Overall health, unstable, mood or temperament, agitated. Thoughts unclear. Subject number two. Condition has slowly gotten worse. Her loss of appetite has receded, and she now claims to have an insatiable appetite for raw meat. When asked why, she said she doesn't know, only that she feels like she's going to die if she doesn't. 
on-duty staff decided to test their theory, placing a raw steak and a large bucket of harvested viscera on her table. After some time, she took a liking to the contents of the bucket over the steak. After finishing the contents, she was asked why she made the choice she did, to which she said she doesn't know, only that something told her to, to and how she thinks she wants more. Overall health, good. Mood or temperament, stable, yet easily distraught. Thoughts, clear. Subject number three. During the sixth night, subject number three attacked and killed an unarmed staff member in his cell. The guard was found crudely disemboweled, his organs gone, and his blood splattered across the room. The subject was found in the corner of his cell, smiling with blood on his face, arms, and body. All attempts to subdue him by armed personnel failed, and was fatally gunned down as a last resort. Overall health, terminated. The experiment has been terminated, but subject number one and subject number two were sent to a maximum security area for further examination before being reintegrated with the base. Subject number one show little signs of improving, and subject number two is unclear. Known symptoms, July 17th, 2018. Insomnia, paranoia, suicidal ideation, changes in appearance of teeth and fingernails, mishappened, deformed, and jagged, strong cravings for human flesh. Date, July 20th, 2018. This will be my last update for some time. I'm going to be boarding a private flight with a group of on-base scientists to a base in the American Northwest to collect more data on the virus, which will include myself, KW, JG, OA, MN, DZ, NV, and AM. I'll do my best to update my log regularly when we arrive to my destination. We're expected to depart on Tuesday, July 24th, 2018 at 0300. We've been informed ahead of time that we'll have to receive extensive training before we would be allowed to interact with the infected directly, meaning we'll only have access to interviews and data by means of surveillance footage or by means of separation as demonstration with the experiment. We'll be careful, and the next update should be from our findings at the base. As of now, no more information has come forward about the status of any recent discovered symptoms. Date July 26, 2018. We landed at the base two days ago, and our search for a cure has gone as planned. My investigation team and I are going to undergo our official training tomorrow morning, which will give us time away from the lab to get acclimated to what it will be like to work with the infected up close. We're nervous, but hopeful. We've been informed that representatives from CDC, based on the East Coast, will be flown in via a private service to work alongside us in our mission to provide a vaccine for the virus with the hope that it will prevent it from spreading further. The current estimated number of infected population is 956 million. Known symptoms, July 26, 2018. No changes. Date, July 31, 2018. Our training course has been successful, and we're scheduled to start getting to work with the infected in the next few days. Several of my colleagues are hopeful that if we don't find a cure soon, we'll at least find a patch to slow the virus replication rate. Yet, many others remain skeptical and doubtful, with this being the fastest spreading virus that we've come to know, infecting nearly one-seventh of the world population less than two months. I'm going to call this update closed for now, as I have a lot of papers to handle, and my designated team and I have to transport some of the infected to a new security base. Known symptoms, July 31st, 2018. No changes. Date, August 1st, 2018. Shit, shit. Something went wrong during the transportation process. When we were escorting the infected inside, a guard didn't see two infected individuals that were roaming the premises unsupervised, being subsequently attacked in the process. We weren't prepared for this. They didn't train us for this. We tried to quickly get to the other side, but the two infected ragers got in with us. They attacked the five of us, who were close to the door. An unarmed guard, OA, KW, NV, and myself. I was too slow and one thing they don't tell you during your training ops is that they bite hard. We're being placed under quarantine for the next few days to check on us, just in case they microscopically broke any skin during the scuffle. I was given permission to bring my computer into my designated chamber so I can continue to work while I'm recovering. In the event I have to become infected with the virus, I'll be given a series of test drugs to see if they'll cancel out the negative effects of the virus. I'll also be documenting my experiences with those as the days unfold. This is going to be a long, long ride. Update number one. It's been two hours since we were quarantined. 
and just over three since we were initially attacked. I was bitten and scratched on my left calf, and the pain was excruciating. I was screaming and cursing at the top of my lungs, nearly the entire way to the emergency unit. The pain was like anything I had ever felt, being a combination of what I can only describe as a snake bite, a wasp sting, and a second-degree burn being magnified tenfold. After my wounds were disinfected and patched up, I was given a round of test antibiotics and a morphine pump before escorted to my isolation chamber. The room is sterile and smells vaguely of pine and cedar. I have a single metal frame bed, a desk connected to the wall, a single shelf above the desk, and a small table where my meals would be served. It feels surreal to being in a room like this, knowing what becomes of those during the experiment. At the moment, I feel fine. The morphine has been helping a lot to dull the pain. The only thing to report on is that the muscles in my left leg feel agitated and sore. Symptoms, August 1st, 2018. Muscle aches, pain, manageable medication. Update number two. I got a couple messages from people asking how I'm doing and how the rest of my team is. It's been six hours since my last post and I was starting to feel nauseous and experiencing some dizziness. Though whether or not that's attributed to the virus or as a side effect of the medication they have me on, I'm not sure. As far as the others go, I haven't been told yet. I'll do my best to remember to ask a guard the next time one of them comes by to check on my vitals. I'm going to try to get some rest and see if that helps or not. Symptoms update. August 1st, 2018. Nausea. Cause. Undetermined. Dizziness. Cause. Undetermined. Date. August 2nd, 2018. It's day two of my recovery process. I woke up at 0600 to have my vitals checked and had breakfast served to me at 0630. I'm still feeling nauseous, so I didn't have much of an appetite. I picked at some of the fruit they gave me and resorted to mainly sticking to a cup of hot coffee. I feel heavy and fatigued all the time, as if I just have a serious cold. I might go back to bed soon. I don't have the energy to move around right now. I'm going to respond to some emails I got in regards to the recent updates and then call it quits until I have my vitals checked again at 12.30 hours. Symptoms update, August 2nd, 2018. Loss of appetite, fatigue. Update number one, it's 12.45, and I woke up in excruciating pain about an hour ago. I jolted up in my sleep feeling like my skin was on fire, and I felt like I tore a muscle. Not pulled or strained, but tore a muscle, as if it was ripping itself from the bone. I tried to give myself as many pumps of morphine as I could, but I'm on a time system, so even after a full dose, I was still in tremendous pain half an hour after the fact. An armed guard and two medical personnel came in to get my vitals, and I told them about my pain levels. They assured me that this was normal, and to not worry. I also asked how the unnamed guard, KW, OA, and NV were doing. They told me they were doing fine, and they should be discharged soon. If they or others from my group come by to check on me, I'll be able to verify their statements then. I'm going to try to eat something light to get my strength up, and then possibly get back to working on some papers for my bed. The current estimated infection population, according to the main CDC headquarters, has reached 1.7 billion. Symptoms update. August 2nd, 2018. No changes. Update number two. It's 1835, and the medical personnel gave me some medication to bring my appetite up, and so far, it's helping. I was able to clear off a sandwich and a small salad, and I'm doing well with holding it down. The medic who checked on me took some new labs, and I said I should have my results in tomorrow afternoon to see if the antibiotics are working or not. They were surprised I was as calm as I was at the time, and that it was a relief for them. I asked them what they meant by that, but they wouldn't budge. I pried them about it till I got them to cave in. I'm still part of the investigation, and I have the right to know what's going on. They told me that they've worked with hundreds or even thousands of people who have been affected by the virus, and that knowing how calm, almost unaware of how sick I truly was, caught them off guard. They continued to say that the mood swings are one of the most commonly reported symptoms, and are more often than not violent. I stopped them for a moment, asking what they meant by the last thing they said, about not being aware of how sick I really was. They immediately froze and stopped talking, as if they realized they said something they weren't supposed to. They just grabbed their supplies and left without saying anything else. I'm starting to get a little scared, and I still haven't seen the rest of my team. I'm going to try to get some rest again, soon. I can hear a storm coming, and from the looks of it, 
it won't be a good one. Symptom update, August 7th, 2018. No changes. Date, August 4th, 2018. I apologize for not updating yesterday like I should have. The weather has been atrocious, and our entire grid lost power from 0430 to 2050. I was able to get some notes typed out before my battery died. Here's what I was able to recall. My morning routine went much the same, and I was able to be escorted to a quarter area to clean myself up. Getting some fresh air away from my confinement was some fine, but I still felt like a caged animal with how close I was being monitored. My body aches and pains have subsided, and I was able to move around more without feeling like I need some type of assistance. My appetite has come back and was able to make up for all the calories I missed in the form of heavy, nutritious shakes and protein bars. Working in near darkness threw my circadian rhythm off, and I ended up sleeping most of the day. Today was much the same. After the power came back, I was finally able to get my lab results back, and my white blood cell count was triple what it should have been. My body knew something was wrong, and was doing its best to fight off whatever it was. The medic who saw me the previous day came back to administer more antibiotics and experimental test drugs, as well as give me another physical. In the light of the room, they were able to make out my features closer and get better readings. The veins in my hands and arms were mild, moderately dilated, and both my fingernails and cuticles were chipped slash torn and beginning to bleed. They checked my vision, pausing for a moment to take notice of what I didn't want to believe were the color of my eyes. They just gave me this look, one where you know they're hiding something from you. They continued to examine and told me that everything was checking out, but whatever or not that was a good thing, they wouldn't say. But one thing is certain, I'm infected. And if my reports over the last two months have been indicative of anything, it's that this is only the beginning and things are going to get worse from here on out. Symptoms update, August 4th, 2018. Dilated veins, discolored of the sclera, dark gray and blotchy. Increased appetite, damage to fingernails and cuticles. Date, August 5th, 2018. I wasn't able to sleep last night. All I could think about is how the past five days have gone and how this isn't what I wanted out of coming here. I spent a good hour throwing up, terrified of knowing what awaits me when this damn disease spreads further. I can't stop thinking about the two subjects in the last month's update that are still, hopefully, alive. I can't help but imagine the fear and dread they must have feel or have, knowing there is an insidious being raging inside them, and there's nothing they can do to stop it. I wonder how many of them tried to fight it back against it, and how many gave up and caved to the beast. While I was curled up on the floor in a mess of my own pity and sorrow, I thought about subject number three, wondering which category he was in during all this. Did he try to fight to suppress the side effects, or did he lose hope and let it win? The days leading up to him being brought in for the study, he seemed fine, albeit distressed. He was clearly hiding something, perhaps trying to mask his pain as the virus weighed him down. I don't know. I can only hope he's at peace now, and that the other two, wherever they are, can have some solace in knowing that we're going to beat this thing. I don't know how or when, but we will. We've survived the bubonic plague, the 1918 Spanish influenza, world wars. In the wake of tragedy, we've proved time and time again that we're strong and we're resilient beings. We're not going down without a damn fight. Everything works out in the end, right? Symptom update, August 5th, 2018. Anxiety, source undetermined. Vomiting, source undetermined. Date, August 6, 2018. I'm beginning to feel weak again, and all I want to do is sleep. I'm losing sight of what's real and what's not. I can't tell if I'm seeing or feeling things because I'm cracking up, or if it's the virus showing itself more to me. I spent a good five minutes shaking in bed, and had a grand mal seizure when I went to clean myself up for an hour ago, which is something that's never happened to me. I was able to get a hold of DZ and JG, who were given authorization to meet me. For their protection, they were put in especially designated hazmat suits, and I was handcuffed to my desk. It was bittersweet seeing them, and the look on their faces seeing me was otherworldly. I don't know how to describe it, but it's just that bleak look of acceptance you see when people are seeing their loved ones for the last time, as if they instinctively knew that things weren't going to go well for me. They told me the status of the project, to look for a cure, 
which was going as well as I should have expected. The virus was replicating at an alarming rate, and there was no telling what could be used or, to, or done to slow it down, even a fraction of the rate it was developing. The virus was changing its structure almost every 72 hours, like clockwork, and predicting its next makeup structure was impossible. In layman's terms, we were fucked. I then asked about how the others were doing. MN and AM were fine, and were planning on heading back to our original camp to get away from all the stress they were dealing with here. When I asked about KW, OA, and V and the guard, they were quiet. JG asked me if I was serious, and then became angry when I told him I had no clue what either of them were talking about. I didn't even know how they got hurt or how bad it ultimately was. Only that it wasn't the only one who got attacked. DUZ was surprised that I wasn't told about anything, and proceeded to fill me in on the best of their abilities. The day after we were quarantined, they got the news that OA died sometime during the night when her aorta ruptured, sometime in her sleep. KW was in and out of the operating room since yesterday for what they were only told was organ failure, and NV was stable, but refusing to talk to anyone. I asked them about the guard again, and they told me when they went in to visit KW in the ICU. They swore they saw someone strapped to a gurney, screaming about how the fucking disease is going to kill us all and kill me now before it makes me hurt you. Before they left, they tried to comfort me and tell me that they were not going to stop looking for a way to beat this, even if they had to die trying. JG added that he was going to send me something to look over when he gets back to his dorm. He told me it was for my eyes only, and did not share it with anyone in our circles. I wasn't sure what he meant by that, but I told him I'd keep his promise. Symptom changes. August 6, 2018. No changes. Update number one. I got JG's file attachment, and I spent an hour analyzing it. If what he sent me is true, then this changes everything. Not only for our investigation team, but all of us. In all my years as a virologist, I've never seen anything like this before, and it could possibly be one of the most blatant cases of medical malpractice I've ever seen. If this is real, then it would be morally repugnant for me to keep this a secret. I'll post an update in an hour of my decision. I'm starting to feel sick again. My back pain is starting to surge again. Update number two. God damn it. I don't know what to even make of this now. I fired a message to JG, asking if anyone else in our group knows about this. He replied back quickly, telling me that DZ does, and he plans on telling MN and AM before they board their flight back home. I could tell he knew I was on something, to which he sent me an angry email back. He insisted that if I told anyone about the attachment, that there was going to be dire consequences for all of us. I demanded to know where he got the information from, to which he told me that he talked to the guard he saw strapped to the gurney in private when the medical team was gone. The guard said he saw someone open the gate when the two infected people were, and that it wasn't an accident. The guard was adamant that the attack was on purpose and that he was sure he wasn't the intended target. One of us were. He went on to say that he found the two surviving candidates from the test. Subject number two told him how she became infected with the virus. She claims that she was a child psychologist turned EMT in the wake of the outbreak and that she often hopped from base to base to help where she could. While stationed in a base near Atlanta, she was approached by a group that claimed to work for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services about partaking in a clinical study to try a potential vaccine against the virus. When she declined, feeling something off about them, she claimed she was stowed into her back of a van and injected with the what she believed to have been a strain of the virus. She was found abandoned several miles outside Chattanooga, with no recollection of her captures. Unable to believe the story for himself, she showed him scars she had got from the struggle and where she began to develop partial necrosis at the infection site. I thought she was bullshitting me, until he sent me the photos as proof. My stomach sank, seeing what she went through. He continued by saying that she's sure this entire outbreak wasn't a fluke or freak of nature, but something deeper. This whole thing is making my head spin. I'm going to call it quits for the night. I'm starting to feel like someone's watching me. The current estimated infection population is believed to be 2.8 billion. Symptoms, August 6, 2018. No changes. Date, August 7, 2018. I woke up to my pillow and bed sheets being soaked with blood, and I wasn't sure why. When I went to open my mouth to call for help, my teeth began to fall out one by one. 
I don't think I ever screamed that loud before in my life, and it took two guards to hold me back so I wouldn't hurt myself. I watched helplessly as a medic bagged my teeth and collected a sample of my blood, walking away as if nothing happened. I don't think my brain had time to process what was going on, so I instinctively ran my tongue across the inside of my mouth, hoping this was some kind of fucked up dream and that this wasn't happening. All I could feel were jagged edges where my teeth once were, almost like shards of broken glass. I snapped and started wailing on anyone or anything that was close to me. I had enough. Whatever this shit was, a natural occurrence or some damn test by the government, it was finally starting to really hit me that this was real. I could feel my blood boil as I threw everything I could get my hands on across the room. I smashed my table to pieces and ripped the shelf from the wall, stripping the bolts in the process. It wasn't until I was coming down from my rage that I saw the extent of what I had done. Not only was my room destroyed, but I also broke my left hand in the process. The weirdest part, though, was that I wouldn't have even noticed unless I saw it for myself or had it pointed out to me. I can't tell if my outburst made me invincible or if I'm no longer able to feel pain. I'll let you know when I test my hypothesis again. Symptom updates, August 7th, 2018. Complete tooth loss. Outbursts of rage, mood swings. Inability to feel or sense pain. Source, undetermined. Date, August 13th, 2018. I've been at work testing my theory about my ability to process pain, or possible lack of theory. I took one of the pins off my jacket and poked at the back of my hand. Nothing. I tried prodding the tips of my fingers. Nothing. I tested again on my arm, skewering a small piece of my skin in the process. Still nothing. No pain or anything to speak of. Even after I started to bleed again, I wanted to push my now, almost certain hypothesis even further. I took one of my fountain pens and rolled up my sleeve. I gripped the pen tight in my hand, and with all my strength, I stabbed myself in the upper arm. I could feel the nib of the pen bend from the force, snapping upon making contact with my humerus when it broke through the skin. I ripped the pen out of my arm, sending a large spurt of blood across the floor. Nothing. I barely felt it. What the fuck? I looked at the now broken, useless pen in my hand, covered in blood and what was left of the ink. I stared at it, fascinated. A new thought was starting to cross my mind. I knew now that my hypothesis was correct, that this wasn't a side effect of my mood swings. This was something entirely different. I finally knew, or at least was quite certain, that I could no longer feel pain. Now I couldn't help but wonder if I would find myself in a place where I could no longer feel anything at all. I'll update you on the theory when the time comes. A symptom update, August 13th, 2018. Inability to feel pain, confirmed. Date, August 15th, 2018. I've been poring over my notes and trying to come to a conclusion as to what I'm going to do with the information JG gave me. The signs were everywhere that this wasn't normal, and it was something the public needed to know. However, the question was what would we do would make things complicated. Do we kill the infected, no matter the stage of their diagnosis? Do we just launch all our nukes and hope there's enough survivors to start over? I don't know. I finally saw my face for the first time in what feels like weeks. It was eerie to say the least to see how this was manifesting itself, staring back at me in an attempt to diagnose myself. The physical characteristics of the virus was nearing its final stages for me. My teeth were starting to come back, but weren't like they once were. Now were almost cryptid-like in their appearance. The capillaries of my skin on my face and neck were more prominent, a condition which Division dubbed angel skin, as it gave the appearance of the skin being ethereal and almost translucent. My eyes have succumbed to changes as well, becoming pitch black and almost void-like. Upon closer examination, I noticed that not only did my sclerus change, but my irises did as well, going from brown to black, as if the pigment was eaten away. The texture of the hair on my head wasn't changed, but it seems like the hair everywhere else, aside from my face, was becoming lighter. I don't recognize myself anymore. Is this part of where I have nervous breakdown or get lost in myself? I'll update this later when I can. I'm starting to feel unwell again. My stomach hasn't stopped growling since I left my room. Symptoms update, August 15th, 2018. Arrival of new teeth. Complete discoloration of the iris and sclera. Angel skin. Changes in hair texture. Depersonalization. Update number one. My stomach has been not all day. No matter what I try to alleviate it, it just keeps getting worse. I tried an assortment of anti-nausea medication and tricks, but nothing works. 
For the past hour, something in the back of my mind has an insatiable craving for something. I couldn't place my finger on it, but the more I lingered on it, the more I knew what was going on. I, I need to test something. Update number two. I just sent a request for something specific to eat, and I'm going to see how this turns out. This is sick. I don't want to do this, but I have to. I have to find out if I'm thinking is true. I'll make another update within the next hour. Update number three. Shit. God damn it. So, I tried to put my theory to the test. It worked. It actually worked. I didn't want to believe it, but it did. I spoke to a guard that was part of my week-long experiment and told them about the craving. She understood what I meant by that and went to go take care of it. She came back with a bucket. That damn bucket. I choked back on my vomit and she put it on this new table in front of me. The smell of the viscera emanated from the bucket was revolting, and I almost threw up. The way they almost shined under the fluorescent lighting and a collection of their own fluids brought back painful memories of college, and the sheer weight of the bucket caught me off guard. I pulled it close to me and knew there was only one thing I could do. The voice in the back of my head grew louder, telling me if I don't eat, then I'm going to die. If I eat, I'll be okay and it will go away. I swallowed my pride and reached into the bucket, sloshing the various guts around as they slid across each other. The feeling of wanting to vomit came back as I felt how slick they were. I picked up a chunk of meat and tore it with my teeth. The muscle was tough but gave way the more I ripped into it. It reminded me of a cut of choice meat you would use for a stew. It had some bite to it and wasn't stringy. The nausea I had moments ago melted away the more I ate, and that's when I knew I was right. This was it. This was the symptom I feared the most, as it signaled the last state of the changes that my team and I were made aware of. Part of me knew that this was wrong, and that this wasn't the kind of person I was. This was sick. This was fucked up. Yet I couldn't stop. For a moment, any ounce of self-control I went out of the window, along with whatever humanity I held onto. I was becoming the very thing I was afraid of, and that there was not going back. This disease, this damn disease made my grave for me, and now I have to lie in it. I don't know how to tell my team about this. I don't even know if NV or KW are alive at this point. I just hope that the rest of them are able to get the fuck out of here while they can, especially if the guard were telling the truth. This will probably be my last update. I don't trust myself to be around other people, and I don't know when or if I'm going to lose myself to this. There's no telling if I'll be the same person a month from now, a week from now, or even tomorrow. I just don't know. That's why I'm stepping away from the investigation as of writing this. I'm so sorry, but I have to do this. I have to do what's in my best interest, and trying to fight this thing isn't one of those things anymore. As part of my way to say goodbye, I'll be leaving an attached documents I've exchanged with JG. Whether or not you choose to use them is up to you. I don't care. They won't be any of use for me anymore. To whoever may be reading this, it's over. There's no going back for us as a society. We're too far gone, and there's nothing we can do to stop the virus. If you're one of the lucky ones, run. Run as fast as you can and avoid the infected while you can. It's up to you to decide whether or not you're a species worth fighting for. The power is in your hands. God forgive us all. This is the end. My only friend, the end. It hurts to set you free, but you'll never follow me. The end of the laughter and soft lies. The end of the nights we tried to die. This is the end. Good night for the last time. Dr. Xander J. Fitzgerald